Welcome to Act in Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Caroline Roberts, producer and host. In this episode of the podcast, we take a look at environmental issues and the need for conservation. We're often told that the environment is only on the decline and that this decline is a result of economic development. This past spring, The Guardian declared that ending climate change requires the end of capitalism. But in the midst of calls for the Green New Deal and overhauls of our economic system, there's another story unfolding. Holly Fretwell, who's a research fellow at the Property and Environment Research Center in Bozeman, Montana, joins us on this episode to show us how the environment is being improved through market-based approaches. Throughout this episode, a few educational videos are discussed, and I will link those in the show notes for you so you can easily find them. And those are published at blog.acton.org. That's blog.acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. The first safari I did in Mozambique in Katoli 11 was in 1994. It was an absolutely beautiful area, the greatest vegetation, habitat, but had one problem. It had hardly any animals. Between 1977 and 1992, the people of Mozambique fought a bloody war. When peace was finally achieved, much of the nation lay in ruins and its once great herds of wildlife had largely vanished from the landscape. As part of efforts to rebuild Mozambique, the government began leasing game reserves to private businesses, and the fate of the country's wildlife took a turn for the better. One shining example is Katata 11 in the Zambezi River Delta. Welcome to Act in Line. I'm your host, John Caritas. Today we're welcoming Holly Fretwell, who is Director of Outreach and a Research Fellow at PERC in Bozeman, Montana. PERC stands for the Property and Environment Research Center. Welcome to Act in Line, Holly. Thank you, John. So nice to be here. Well, I want to start today, if we can, uh, talking about a uh, really fascinating video that you folks recently produced. We posted to the Acton blog. The title of the blog post is Turning African Game Poachers into Conservationists, and it tells the story uh, through the eyes of Mark Haldane, who is an African hunting guide, and how he helped revive wildlife in a region called Kutata 11 along the Zambezi River in Mozambique. And what he's done is not only bring wildlife back, but he's provided uh, an economic way out of the trap they were in when they were poaching, what he's done is not only bring wildlife back, but he's allowed people in that area through their conservation of wildlife to earn a living. It's really changed the complexion of everything there. So could you talk a little bit about how this story, Mark Haldane's story, and those uh, local villagers uh, near the uh, Zambezi River, how that illustrates what we call free market environmentalism. Sure. This story is actually an amazing story and, and just sort of a, a heartwarming story because it occurred 
after the Civil War in Mozambique, and wildlife uh, were just devastated. Populations were gone. Uh, people were surviving on the wildlife. Uh, warriors were surviving on the wildlife. Soldiers were surviving on the wildlife. And so everything was pretty much uh, desolate. I mean, they had they had decimated most of, of the animals and the wildlife populations. People had moved out of the villages and communities. After the war, uh, Mark Haldane came in. He, um, as you said, he is a uh, safari hunter and, and guide throughout uh, various areas in Africa. He came in and he purchased a lease in an area called Kutata 11. And with that lease, he started to provide safari hunts in that region. What he found out quite quickly was, first, there were no animals there. Uh, second, it was a beautiful area that had what looked like great habitat. Uh, but third, people were poaching the animals because that's all they had to survive on. And he switched that. He started hiring some of the individuals that were poaching these animals. And instead of poaching them, he would pay them to prevent other people from poaching them. And he would provide meat for people so that they would reduce the, the poaching that was taking place. And he found that the wildlife started to return and the population started to grow. And he funded his project here through uh, safari hunting. He actually has people that come in and they pay mostly uh, from the developed countries and a lot from the United States. They pay uh, lots of money to hunt various different safari animals. And he uses those revenues to pay the anti-poachers who were previously the poachers. And in that way, he has restarted that community because these individuals now have uh, money. They have income. They have meat. Uh, oftentimes, the, the people that are hunting the animals don't want the meat, so they give the meat back to the villagers. And they've also started to invest in education and, and health care and all sorts of other things to um, help develop this community. And all of it really done through the, through the marketplace by uh, an individual that saw potential and came in and just tried, to, to, tried his hand at becoming what we at PERT call an uh, environmental entrepreneur, that is enhancing the environmental quality and making a profit doing so. Right. Now, let's just um, stop there at the safari hunting part. Uh, safari hunting has, in some quarters, come in for... Uh, a bad rap. Uh, we go back to, I think it was 2015, Cecil the Lion and that whole episode where this magnificent animal was killed by a hunter. So there, in various places, there have been campaigns, celebrities and environmentalists to ban trophy hunting. So why, explain the logic there for trophy hunting. How does that help? How is it, how does it come about that a fellow who makes his living doing these guides is also restoring wildlife. Well, you have to align the incentives, and the incentives for somebody like uh, Mark Haldane, who owns this or, or leases this land, is to ensure that they have lots of wildlife so that they can both provide for um, a good hunt uh, in today and it down the road in the future. And so it is in his best interest to be sure there are plentiful wildlife in the region, um, both for trophy hunts and for other types of hunts uh, that exist there. Uh, for sure, there are some people that are very opposed to hunting. I am not a hunter myself, um, but I do understand that the, the value of allowing these hunts to take place is really what is allowing uh, the sort of the regeneration of this, of this community and the redevelopment of this community. 
um, because of, especially if we're thinking of trophy hunts, where the, the price tag on some of these animals is, is extremely large. Again, we're not, um, we're not talking about endangered species. We're not talking about species, you know, that um, are, are dwindling in these areas. They're species that are actually doing fairly well, um, and they're doing well because of these individuals that are providing these trophy hunts and these safari hunts want to make sure that they have a, a livelihood in their future. Uh, so um, there, I, I understand why some people might be opposed to, to hunting into trophy hunts, but what we're finding out is that when we allow that to occur and uh, the allowing these uh, products to be imported back into the United States and other developed countries is a big part of this equation, but when we allow that to occur, these monies are going back on the ground to these individuals and to these communities, and that's what's helping them survive. The, the revenues that they're getting from, from trophy hunts are considerably larger than the types of revenues they get um, from photographic safaris, uh, which... Uh, photo tourism, maybe, in other words, yeah. Exactly, yeah. photo tourism, uh, which may be sufficient in some areas, but in, in Mozambique, in this particular area, particularly in Mozambique, uh, it is not the, the beautiful safari place that most of us um, that would like to go on a safari would want to go to. It's, um, it's flatlands, it's swampy, it's buggy, um, it's ideal hunting, I've been told, but it's not the place I would want to go to a safari. So the logic here is as the herds come back, as the species begin to flourish again, there are more of them available, a certain portion of them available for hunters. And that small portion that may be taken in the hunt can produce a lot of income for everyone involved. Do I have that right? That, that's exactly that's exactly right. Uh, the the revenues that are generated from hunters go back into the community and into the safari operator. Uh, but what we do find is if we ban trophy hunting and we ban uh, the ability to bring some of these horns and and trophies back into the United States and other developed countries, then individuals are no longer interested and willing to go down for the hunt. It's not all about the hunt. Uh, a lot of it's about about getting the trophy for many of these people. And if they can't bring back their trophy, they're really not interested. And as a result of, of bans that we've seen in the past, we've seen declines uh, to the point where the operators simply can't afford to pay the anti-poachers and their guards anymore, and we go back to where we were before, where we see a lot of poaching. Well, let's uh, turn now, if we could, to how PERC defines free market environmentalism. I'm looking at one description of free market environmentalism uh, on your site, and it says, free market environmentalism comes from entrepreneurs seeking ways to enhance environmental quality and the bottom line. By covering costs and earning profits, this type of environmentalism is sustainable. It stems from clearly defined ownership to resources and the right to trade them. So could you help us? What are the various elements of that? Um, that's the concise definition. But could you unpack that a bit for us? Sure. Free market environmentalism really is just voluntary trade that produces good environmental outcomes. And to allow that voluntary trade and to uh, allow or to have markets function well, we really need secure property rights. Uh, property rights un underlie all of our, our, our market systems. And there's a couple of, of characteristics of property rights that are just really key for us to think about. Uh, first of all, is just what, it, what is property? What do you own? Can you define what you own and can you defend it? Um, that's sort of the first component of, of understanding what your, what your property or your asset is. 
Um, secondly, it needs to be excludable. That is, I have this piece of property, but I need to be able to exclude others from using my property, or we might run into what we call the tragedy of the commons. So you can imagine that I have this beautiful garden, and I'm growing all these wonderful vegetables and flowers, and if any of my neighbors can just walk by and pick all my vegetables and, and cut all my flowers, then I'm not going to invest as much in, in that garden because I'm not going to benefit as much um, as maybe the, the effort that I'm putting in. If I can exclude other people from it, then I'm going to invest more in that. And so we see that tragedy of the commons when we have some resource, environmental resource or other type of resource uh, that exists and in some limited quantity, that is that we want more of it than maybe actually exists out there. And if we can't exclude people from it, then people just keep coming and taking more and more and more. Um, fisheries would be a, yeah, a great ocean example. Ocean fisheries would be a good example. Here in the Great Lakes, we, um, we have a big problem with algae blooms in uh, some of our lakes, Lake Erie, for example, and that's a case of no one really owns Lake Erie, and so we have this huge problem. So how do you sort out in a tragedy of the commons, what sort of solutions have you seen for maybe for fisheries or something else where people have been able to begin to come to grips with these um, naughty environmental issues? Right. And, and, and not, naughty they are. They, they can be very difficult. But the, the idea of tragedy of the commons, we really just need to be able to exclude some people from use. And if we look at our fisheries, we have historically had, you know, regulations and time limits. And, um, you know, you could only fish for a certain season. And if you actually look up at the halibut fishery in Alaska, we had shortened the season for commercial fisheries to um, two 48-hour periods. That is, those fishermen could fish literally for only two different times of year, and both of those times were two days long. And it really became a race to fish. They would literally uh, blow off a, a gun to, to start the fishery, just like you'd start a race, and then the, and the fishermen would race out there, and they'd, you know, sunshine, storm, didn't matter, uh, catch as many fish as they possibly could, come back in, dump all the fish on the, on the docks, and even though we kept shortening the season shorter and shorter and shorter, we kept bringing in more and more fish. It so sounds incredibly wasteful. Right? Fishermen just got bigger and bigger boats yeah, to get yeah. out there and get more and more fish. And think about all the fish that are wasted when you bring them all in at the same time. It's hard to process that many sure. fish at one time. So one way to create a property right on, on the fish and to try to, to get the, gain this excludability was to actually create what are called tradable quotas, or sometimes they're called rations. And essentially, it is a, um, a market-based solution. Government comes in and says, look, we have to somehow create a property right here. And the way the property rights were created in most cases uh, across many different countries was to look at the historic catch of many of the different fishermen that existed out there, and they would measure the amount of fish that they saw in the ocean, and they would get some idea uh, do it through science of how many fish they needed to leave in the ocean to be a sustainable uh, amount of fish. And then what was left over is what they called the total allowable catch. And they would split that total allowable catch up based on the historic uh, amount of fish or percentage of fish that each one of these fishermen in this commercial fishery um, previously had. And and, and so now you have sort of this right to fish for a certain, let's say I could fish for 10% of, of the halibut in, in the Alaskan fishery. Um, and it is not only a right that I have that 10%, but it's tradable. So if somebody else wants to buy my right, I can sell it to somebody else. But 
the overall point here is that now we've excluded some people from the fishery. They can buy into the fishery, so we've not literally excluded them, but we've limited the number, um, the amount of fish that are actually going to be caught in that fishery. And it benefits all the fishermen in, in that uh, particular area uh, because now we all have the incentive to just catch the amount of fish that we can because we know if that fishery grows in population, that total allowable catch will also go up and then we can catch more fish and we'll all be better off. So they have a sense of a stake in what's going on out there and maybe they're accountable to each other and to their employees, to their communities about how they're handling that. Exactly. It certainly takes some monitoring um, as well, but now we have that excludability and we've seen uh, a a huge change in the the fisheries across the globe where we've used these tradable quotas and that we've, we've decreased that collapse of fisheries and are actually starting to see those populations rise again. So uh, this makes a lot of sense. Where in these efforts you invariably would involve um, government agencies, natural resources, departments of states, federal? How do you sort out the various roles between um, the property rights and property owners versus the governmental units that are tasked with overseeing a lot of this? Right. Let's come back to just sort of that general idea of of property rights. Um, We said they need to be excludable, and so we need some sort of monitoring or enforcement that goes with that, um, which, you know, I would say that the the lowest cost of of, of finding that sort of a monitoring system is is through some form of governance. Um, I also say that it's really important for them to be tradable, right? Um, When we're talking about the the fisheries, we said, you know, if we're allowed to to trade them, then we're not excluding everybody. You know, we're not just saying you have the rights and nobody else does, but we can actually trade those rights around. And that needs to be monitored in some way. And I would say that that there are some really important roles for for government. And the the most important role is to help us uh, define and secure our property rights. And at which level of governance we want to see, I think, depends upon uh, what sort of level of, of resource we're talking about. Is it a resource that's in my backyard? Then I can probably look to a very local level of governance versus something like the fisheries, which are um, expand sometimes to, you know, most of our fisheries that with the quotas we're looking at are at a state level, but they expand out to a global level as well. Um, not suggesting we should have some global governance. That's, I think that's really scary, but um, at, at some point we have to, to think about what is the most rational approach um, or the most rational scale of that form of governance. And I think it really is what is the smallest level that exists out there that can actually help us solve the problem that we're trying to deal with. Well, it, it's, it's striking to me in that at Acton, we spend a lot of time looking at how churches are involved in environmental work, um, everything from a parish greening program to their activism at the highest level. But we rarely see this kind of approach from churches. It's always in favor, it seems to me, for the most part, in these very top-down, global, transnational uh, approaches that might involve things like the Paris Climate Accord or the United Nations. Uh, and when you do that, it seems to me you, you're missing what's going on at the local level, what can go on here with individual civic action, people tending to the land and the habitat where they live. And so I guess I find it rather striking that we're not seeing more of that among uh, churches that are all based locally in some respect. Do you ever see any activity among church groups or these sorts of faith-based organizations in this area? Any come to mind? You know, we have a lot of 
local groups here in Bozeman, Montana, where, where we are located, that do get out and, and replace fencing, um, uh, work with landowners uh, for, for various wildlife habitat restoration projects, forest projects. Um, th- there's certainly some level of, of interest and of volunteer work that, that's taking place to help get stuff done on the ground. It does seem to me that a lot of the the church groups and then the the projects um, that I'm aware of with church groups tend to be at a more global scale and actually going somewhere else to do some project um, or, or or working on some effort. Well, conservation uh, should begin at home. I think there's uh, plenty to do right here. You know, it's interesting that we have so many people that say, you know, think locally um, and, and eat locally and how about conserve locally, right? How about work with our neighbors to, to actually think about conservation and get out there and do some more of this trail work and fencing repairs and, and that type of stuff, really working um, at that local level. Another thing that I, I'm struck by is that it's, you know, we're in a uh, an era now where a lot of the communications on environment and climate in particular has a definite apocalyptic or catastrophic bent to it. And I sense from talking to others in uh, the think tank world that when you bring up the environment, it's just sort of you get the eye roll and, geez, let's not go there right now. And I think we're, I think we're missing the boat in large part when you react that way. For one thing, there are a lot of really healthy and growing conservation groups uh, out there that are distinctly conservative. So do I have that right? Is there a kind of um, messaging problem that conservatives need to overcome on environmental issues? I think there is for sure, because if you actually look at the environment, things are getting better. I might need to repeat that, right? Go ahead. Things really are getting better. (laughs) Can't be said often (laughs) enough. Right. But really, if you if you go back 100 years and look to the present days, I mean, our sure. air is cleaner, our water is cleaner. Um, we actually have areas that are being reforested, especially in the developed world. And I think maybe we want to think about the, the developed versus developing. As we increase our income, we tend to become wealthier. Well, obviously, as we increase our income, we tend to become healthier and we have more money uh, to invest in environmental quality. And we, we understand uh, the importance and the value of environmental quality and have a greater demand for environmental quality. As we look at developing countries, uh, we see, first off, as they start to develop, they might actually start to, to pollute a little bit more as they're starting to go through their own industrial revolutions. And then they hit what's called a turning point, and, and, um, it, which is that, that level of income where they actually start to say, hey, now we have money to invest in environmental quality and we're concerned about it. We actually might live past um, you know, age 30 or 40 to, to some older age, and so now we're a lot more concerned about our environmental quality and our health, and, and we can afford to invest in it. And so we actually see the environment getting better um, over, over time after some point of and some income level. So we want to be sure that we're, we're promoting um, prosperity across the globe if we really want to be promoting environmental quality. And we also want to think about what those trade-offs are. We have many groups and individuals out there that are so concerned about, about climate change and, and, and these global issues and that, that we need to invest all of our money right there. Uh, but if we actually think about what are the trade-offs of, of, to humanity are for, for investing in, in global uh, renewable resources or renewable power versus actually investing in helping you know, people deal with malaria and some of these other issues that are right at their doorsteps and then help them increase their prosperity, we're likely to get better 
better results and, and reduced emissions in a shorter time period if we increase prosperity versus just trying to force technologies on people that really are expensive right now and, and are not effective at getting what we want in regards to reduced emissions. Yeah, that's true on the energy front. And it's true about a lot of technologies. And the problem with this this uh, uh, shrieking about we only have 12 years to live and we have to decarbonize the global industrial economy and all these things that are pure nonsense, really, is that I think in some quarters it breeds a sort of fatalism. And it's like, okay, well, what's the point of doing anything? Because, you know, it's all going to burn up. When, in fact, uh, there's been a lot of creativity in the energy area, new technologies, habitat. All of this is going on right now. And uh, it's not helpful to uh, do this all-or-nothing sort of uh, all-or-nothing crying wolf type of thing when, in fact, there's a lot to be done still. That's right. And we think of some of the new technologies that are coming out and the innovations that are coming out, they're really motivated by the marketplace, right? They're really motivated by entrepreneurs that see a, a potential benefit in their future, uh, much more so than when we have government that's mandating the types of technologies that we need to use. So uh, let's uh, keep it optimistic here. Can you think of some other examples of how uh, a free market environmentalism approach has produced some really great successes? We have a, a number of different stories that we've worked on. I think, I think one that hits home with a lot of people is just thinking about water and in-stream flow. If you are in the West 20 or 30 years ago, we had a lot of uh, rivers and streams that were drying up, literally drying up, uh, because of the, the property rights and the rules that we had with regards to water. Well, it's a classic conflict in the West, is it not? The uh, you know water rights have always been contentious within places that are it's not the Great Lakes, right? You have a limited amount of water and some stretches of land that are can be fairly arid. Right, right. In the West, we have a, a limited amount of water, and we have uh, rules that are historically based on first-in-time, first-in-use. And so individuals that were coming out to, to grow crops on the landscape, if you were the first one out here, you had a certain amount of water allocated, and it was how much you were actually using for beneficial use. And beneficial use meant pulling it out of stream and putting it on your agricultural crops um, to, to grow those crops. Now, if we look at today's world, and what we're seeing is uh, that irrigators were, were pulling that water off, and, and we were reducing the in-stream flow, and we were causing uh, problems with our fisheries. Sometimes the, the, those streams would go entirely dry, but it was based on the, the property rights system that was given to these irrigators, and that was, it was a use-it-or-lose-it system. So they had no incentive to not use the water, and there was no ability to trade that water. They were not allowed to, to trade the water or sell the water or lease the water to anybody else, and if they didn't use it, they'd lose it. So the obvious response was to use as much water as, as, they, um, as they had. And sure, it's rational, it rational response to where they are, right? Incentives again, yeah. Right. So uh, over time at PERC, we've pushed for what we call water markets and, and to try to change some of these laws and policies so that we actually now see in most Western states, there is some ability to uh, to sell that water or trade that water or lease that water so that it can be left for in-stream flow. Uh, we also had to make some changes so that in-stream flow was actually seen as a beneficial use. Um, but we do indeed now see that there are lots of different negotiations that are taking place to allow that water to stay in-stream uh, 
farmers stay whole, they can they can irrigate uh, more efficiently, which allows for some water to stay in stream. They can trade that water or sell that water to others that are interested in conserving the fisheries um, or recreating on the, on those waterways. And we see very few of those rivers that are actually drying up like they historically were. We certainly still have some issues. Uh, the biggest problem, I think, is that we over-allocated those water resources early on. And so actually there were um, allocations of water to people um, when there was not nearly that much water on a, a normal year. So people have rights to water that doesn't even exist. And, and that still becomes a very contentious issue. But nonetheless, allowing for these trades and the beneficial use to stay in stream um, has tremendously changed uh, what our water, uh, waterways, rivers, and streams, and fisheries look like here in the West. Yeah, and provides recreation, income. It's hard to make a living as a fishing guide if there's no water in the riverbed. That's right. We we actually have another uh, video online that's uh, that's very interesting. Uh, it's it's brewing for conservation, and it's actually a project that was uh, pulled together by the Nature Conservancy uh, on the Verde River in Arizona. And what they have done is they were working with different irrigators trying to figure out how they could get more water in stream in the Verde River during peak uh, summer months of July and August. And they realized that if the farmers grew barley instead of corn and alfalfa, they would use less water and they would use the water through June and the barley um, is actually... uh, Barley is actually harvested in June, so the water is left in stream for July and August. The reason the farmers weren't interested in growing barley is there was, uh, it was feed barley, which is not worth very much money, and there was no malting facility locally to take uh, barley and, and make it into beer. So what the Nature Conservancy did is they worked with a local investor who started a malting facility, and he now buys the barley from the, the farmers at a much higher rate than the feed barley is worth, and malts that barley and sells it to the local breweries. And what we've seen is that now we have in-stream flow throughout July and August in the Verity River. I think we all should uh, raise a foamy glass of beer and salute Nature Conservancy and everyone else associated with that project. Right? Yeah. Holly, this has been great. Um, thank you for walking us through this. And we will put that um, video on our blog with other show notes about PERC and hope to have you back soon. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening today. To learn more about the Acton Institute and what we do, visit our website at acton.org. This episode of Acton Line was produced and edited by me, Caroline Roberts, with audio mixing by Doug Nagel. 